Today's scripture comes from Psalms 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, As you could probably tell, uh, I have a little frog in my throat, and the only explanation I have about it is I have four kids, and they are walking biohazards, and they have taken their turn on beating down daddy's immune system, where a normal cold that would take three weeks for a healthy, average young male to overcome is now taking me three months to overcome. So with that said, let's pray for God's mercy. Give me strength so that you won't get distracted, and God forbid that you won't get sick. Um, Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for every Lord's Day where you come and you visit your people with your presence through the preaching of the word. Father, there is nothing more sacred when your people gather together and hear the word of the Lord. And Lord, we pray that no matter what we've gone through, no matter what we're in right now, we trust that all these things that distract us and discourage us will have its place where you will triumph over them and once again assure us that you are king and you are our loving heavenly father and that all things work out for the good of those who love you. Father, I pray that you will be with us and encourage us as we sit at your feet. Oh Lord, would you minister to us that you would empower us and encourage and equip us through the word so that we may leave this place better and able to live out the calling that you have given all of us, which is to be a blessing to this world. Oh God, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. 
All right, guys, so we're continuing our sermon series entitled Views of a Healthy Church. And the whole point of this series is to look at the crucial matters pertaining to the Christian faith and asking ourselves the question, how would a healthy church view these matters? How would a healthy church view the crucial items when it comes to Christianity? Because the underlying assumption is, is that the... The underlying assumption is, is that how a healthy church views these matters is actually the correct way in which we view it, right? That a healthy church's perspective is actually the right perspective. So far in this series, we looked at the crucial matter as to the person of Jesus. Then we looked at the crucial matter of the Bible. Then we looked at the crucial matter of church leadership. Then we looked at the matter of missions and the nations for God. And then finally last week, we talked about evangelism. Well, today, we come to the crucial matter of repentance. I want to talk to you guys today about what it means for a healthy church to view the matter of repentance. And this really is a very important question to ask because the fact of the matter is there are a lot of unhealthy churches out there precisely because they have an unhealthy understanding of what repentance is. Okay. In fact, there might be some of you in here that may have an unhealthy understanding of what repentance is and is not. It all depends on how you understand that word repentance. You know, for some of us, when we hear the word repentance, certain scenarios and certain images may pop into our mind. For some of us, when we hear the word repentance, we envision some very angry, sweaty, yelling preacher screaming at the top of his lungs, repent, right, repent, in a very crowded, humid room where it's filled with people with tears streaming down their face, not going in and out of their nostrils that they're breathing in because they're so emotional and they're so moved by such a sense of a repentant, convicting spirit, right? For others of us, when we hear the word repentance, sometimes we think of that day when we first received Jesus as Lord and Savior, when someone was leading us to pray the sinner's prayer, right? Maybe it was a Bible study teacher, maybe it was a college fellowship partner, or maybe it was maybe your youth pastor where they said, look, you want to accept Jesus Christ, then this is what you need to do first. You need to repent of your sins, where you openly acknowledge what you have done wrong and how sorry you are and how you plan to turn away from your sins and embrace Jesus as your Lord, as your master, right? And so you did. You repented of your sins, but the problem is that's the last time you've ever done repentance. Now, if these are ways in which you understand the word repentance, that is either kind of this emotional, cathartic uh, experience that you have every year at the annual retreat where you make a recommitment to God, or if you see it as that moment when you accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, I'm going to tell you now that you don't have a complete picture of what repentance is. Repentance is so much more than that day when you repented of your sin to receive Jesus or that time when you were on that emotional roller coaster at a retreat recommitting your life to God. Repentance actually is an ongoing spiritual activity of the Christian life. Let me say that again. Repentance is an ongoing spiritual activity of the Christian life. Consider these words from Pastor Tim Keller when he writes this. Repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. Indeed, pervasive, all-of-life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. Having a proper understanding, a proper view of repentance begins with understanding that repentance is an ongoing thing that you do throughout your life. It isn't something you do once you become a Christian. It isn't something you do once a year when you go on that revival or retreat. It is an ongoing thing that you always will do till the day you meet Jesus face to face. That's how we grow in our faith. Repentance is crucial in our growth as Christians. 
But here's the thing. Just like with any endeavor to grow, we're going to have resistance, right? Whenever we try to better ourselves, whenever we try to mature, we have resistance. There are obstacles when it comes to moments of growth, and repentance is no different, right? Whenever we try to live the life of repentance that is part of the Christian life, we will face oppositions, we will face obstacles, and in fact, it's not until you are aware of these obstacles that you will not be able to properly live out a repentant lifestyle that the Bible calls us to live out. And so what I want to do today is help us to overcome these obstacles of repentance by talking about the crucial elements of a repentant life. I want to talk to you guys today about what are the elements, the crucial elements, when it comes to living out a lifestyle of repentance as a way of growing in your faith. And to do that, we're going to take a look at the classic text in the Bible that embodies and really models this kind of repentance that the Bible teaches us to have, Psalm chapter 51. But before we jump into the text itself, just so that you get the full measure of what this text is trying to teach us, let me give you a little bit of background information behind this text so that you can fully understand the significance of what it's saying. This psalm, Psalm 51, is actually a personal prayer of King David. Now, who is King David? King David is arguably the greatest king the nation of Israel ever had. He would be the equivalent of maybe like an Abe Lincoln or George Washington in our culture today. In fact, he is for first and foremost, a renaissance man. And what I mean is he was a total package. He was pretty much good at everything. He was a talented musician. He was a mighty warrior. He was a brilliant military strategist. And first and foremost, he was a spiritual man. He is given the unique title in scripture of being the man after God's own heart. This is a man who not only looked good, could fight good, could sound good, but he was a man who walked with God in such a way that people looked up to him as a man who was good. And yet, when you read his story, particularly in the book of 2 Samuel, you may be shocked to discover that at some point in David's life, scandal comes into his life. That's really no different than the kind of scandals that we see some of our politicians, some of our celebrities going through, but it's worse. Much, much worse than anything that you ever see on the news or read about on the internet. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, which is the background behind this psalm, there we encounter David, who's at the pinnacle of his career as the king of Israel. Israel. And what is he doing? He's walking on the rooftop of his palace, kind of moseying about. And lo and behold, something catches his eye, or actually someone catches his eye. Across from his terrace, he peers in to the neighboring house and he sees a naked woman, right? Bathing by herself. And as he inquires about her, what does he do? He summons her, brings her into the bedchamber, sleeps with her, and inadvertently gets her pregnant. She tells him that she is pregnant with his child, and in a moment of utter panic, what does he do? He goes up into cover-up mode. What does he do? He summons this woman's husband, who, by the way, is not some random stranger that he doesn't know, is not some nameless citizen of his kingdom. You know who this woman's husband is? It's one of his closest allies, his most trusted lieutenant, a man by the name of Uriah. And what does he do with Uriah? He sends him out on what is essentially is a suicide mission in the hopes that he would be dead. And indeed, that's what happens. He sends him out on the suicide mission. And once David hears that Uriah is dead, he quickly moves in and he marries 
Bathsheba before she gives birth to their child, thereby averting any major political scandal in such a way that he would lose credibility in the eyes of his people. David thinks, I just made it. I avoided a major disaster. But oh, no. No. He doesn't because God loves David too much to let him get away with his sin because what does he do? God summons his servant Nathan and he goes up to David, Nathan does, and he confronts him of his sin. But here's the wisdom of Nathan. He doesn't go right in his face and be like, David, you wicked evil sinner. You know, Nathan is smarter than that. He knows not to provoke his king. So what does he do? He tells a story, a story that ends up unsettling David in a profound way. Take a listen to how the story begins. This is 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in the first verse. We read, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and he grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for, for the one who had come to him. Now, here's what's so ingenious about Nathan. Nathan crafts this story in such a way to where he knows David is going to identify with who in the story? With the villain? No. He's going to identify with the victim, the one with the poor little sheep, the ewe lamb. Why? Because David himself at one point in his life was also a shepherd like this poor guy. And he had little ewe lambs and who he loved and embraced and slept with in his house and so forth. So he knew immediately by crafting the narrative this way that David would immediately identify himself with the victim. And this is verified by the way David reacts. Listen to David's reaction to the story. David burned with anger against this man. And said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that land four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David is infuriated with anger and he's ready for blood. It's at that moment, Nathan, in a moment of kind of mental jujitsu, turns the tables and points his prophetic finger at him in full authority and says, you are that man. You're not the victim, David. You're the bad guy. You're the villain. You're the evil one. And it was at that moment that David was confronted to where he could no longer deny, no longer escape what he did, that he finally comes clean and he finally confesses and goes into a mindset of repentance and starts living a life of repentance, which Psalm 51 tells us. And as we take a look at this text, we're going to see three things that tell us that make up genuine biblical repentance. Three crucial elements of repentance, and they are the following. Number one, acknowledge who you really are. Number two, recognize the true lawgiver. And number three, remember the great exchange. Acknowledge who you really are, recognize the true lawgiver, and remember the great exchange. Let's jump right in. First, acknowledge who you really are. Now, one of the things that you'll notice right away as you read Psalm 51 is how often David refers to himself, right? If you just counted how many times David uses the personal pronoun, words like me, myself, I, my, he says it over and over again, over 30 times. Now, let me ask you, if you're having a conversation with somebody and they're always talking about themselves, you know, I did this, you know, myself, I'm like that, or me, yeah, this is what I did, what would you conclude about this person? 
What did you say? Wow, what a self-centered, self-absorbed, narcissistic person, right? I mean, David is referring to himself over and over again. And it would be tempting to think that he must be a narcissist or he must be full of himself. But I don't know if you can say that about David, at least not at this moment as he's praying this repentant prayer. Why? Because take a listen to some of the things that he says about himself. He says this, have mercy on me. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin and so forth. Here is a man talking about himself, but he's not talking about himself in a very positive way, right? In fact, just the opposite. It's almost like he's going out of his way to really show how disgusting and how messed up he is, right? And mind you, this is not some private person, some Joe Schmo on the street that nobody cares about. This is a man with reputation. This is the king of Israel. This is a man who everyone thought was the greatest king on the earth. This is a man who has much to lose by having a a smug of flaws and brokenness in his public persona. If you think about it, it's so different to how public figures today would react once they're caught in a scandal. Because how do people typically react when they're caught doing something stupid, something wrong? How do celebrities, how do politicians react when they are found out, when they do something wrong, do something unethical? What do they do? Don't they go into hiding? Right? Anyone here... Know where Anthony Weiner is right now? Anyone have any idea where he is? Anyone heard of him? Right? You guys remember that guy, right? That politician? Where did he go? Twitter is shut down. Snapchat is closed. Facebook account is no longer active. Right? What do people do when they're found out, when they're seen as being flawed and broken? They go into hiding. They go nowhere in public sight to where they disappear for days, for weeks, months, maybe even years. But David is not doing that. He's going on public display. He's, in a sense, publicly displaying his flaws, his brokenness. David, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? David is trying to show us, by his example, the first thing you need to recognize, first thing you need to acknowledge when you repent genuinely and biblically, you have to acknowledge who you really are. What do I mean by that? What do you mean to acknowledge who you really are? One of my favorite movies is The Dark Knight, part of the Batman trilogy, is directed by Christopher Nolan. And the second movie, The Dark Knight, there's a scene where Harvey Dent, who ends up becoming the villain of the story later on as Two-Face, but he's not Two-Face yet, he's still Harvey Dent, he's still a good guy, right? He's having dinner with Bruce Wayne, and they're talking about politics and how to save the city and so forth. And at one poignant part in discussion, he says the following, quote, you either, long, you either live long enough... Oh, wait, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself to become the villain. That statement right there is the perfect statement to describe David. That's like the Davidic meme, if that, put it that way. If you want to have a meme for a person's life, that is perfectly describing King David because that's how King David was. Here is a man who everyone thought, including himself, was so perfect, so set apart, so above reproach, so impeccable to where he could do no wrong. And it turns out he is no different than some of the wicked, evil, perverted people that he would throw in prison as the king of Israel. David is acknowledging that he is the villain, that he is the bad guy. He's not the victim. He is the villain, or as the Bible puts it, he is the sinner. Now, here's the thing. For many of you in here, for those of you who grew up going to church, chances are many of you, if push came to shove, you probably would say the same thing about yourself, right? Yeah, I admit, Pastor John, I make mistakes, 
I'm full of flaws or I have done things that I'm not proud of. I'm a sinner too. And so maybe you might say, yeah, I'm with David. I'm like him. I'm a sinner. But here's the problem. When you compare how you understand yourself to be a sinner to how David understands himself to be a sinner, it's going to be completely different. Why do I say that? Because for most of you, if we're honest, you think that in order to be a sinner, you first have to commit a sin, right? That's how many of us think, that you are a sinner because you first sin. That's the cause and effect. You sin, cause, effect, sinner. But look into what David says here in verse 5. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. What is he saying? He's saying the exact opposite. He's saying, no, 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 no. It's not that I'm a sinner because I first sinned. No, I sin because I am first and foremost a sinner. He reverses the cause and effect relationship to where the reason why you sin is because first he's a sinner. It's not that he's a sinner because he first sinned. No, he sinned because he's a sinner. That is what he is saying. He is saying what theologians refer to as a sin nature. And what that basically means is that you and I and every other human being that walk on this earth, we are born with an innate, instinctual, desirous tendency to always want to go against God, to go against his will, to go against his laws, and to do everything that we can to not be in no submissive obedience to him. That is what the sin nature is. You and I are born. It doesn't have to be taught to us. We don't have to be exposed to it. You and I are born with a natural proclivity, a natural bent towards disobeying God. Okay? That is what that means. Now, some of you may think to yourself, well, Pastor John, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like what my Bible study teachers told me because my Bible study teachers told me that, you know, when God created mankind... You know, you read in Genesis 1 and 2 when he created Adam and Eve, that when he created them, right, he created them in his image, right? And doesn't that mean that he created us to reflect who he's like? And if God is righteous, he's morally pure, he's upright, that means he created Adam and Eve upright. Wouldn't that mean that we're upright too? How can you say that we're born with this natural instinct to sin when the Bible says that when we were first made as humans, we're made in his image? Yeah, but did you read the rest of the story? Genesis 1 and 2 does teach us that when God created Adam and Eve and what his intent was for humanity was, yes, that we would reflect who God is in terms of his character, in terms of his righteousness and purity. But Adam and Eve had a problem, a problem that affects all of us. They disobeyed God. You remember Satan in the form of a serpent, serpent, a snake, tempted Adam and Eve, and they disobeyed God by eating from the tree that God forbid them to eat. And they ate. And all of that righteousness, all of that moral brightness that they were endowed with, they forfeited. They became a fallen human being. And not only them, but all of their children, all of their progeny, you and me and every other human being that walks on this earth. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking to yourself, Pastor, what's with all this theological lesson here? Why are you teaching us all this stuff about the sin nature and that we're born sinners? Well, simple. We need to understand that you and I and every human being, we're born this way because it prevents us from doing what we always tend to do when we're confronted with our sins. What do we typically do when someone calls us out? When someone puts a spotlight on us that we are broken and sinful, we've done something wrong? Don't we tend to minimize? 
justify, excuse, right? Blame shift our sins in such a way as if we're not really responsible, right? You know, one of the things that uh, criminals will do when they're caught and they committed a heinous crime, at least the way it's seen on TV, and of course that must be how it really is in real life, right? You know, one of the things that you typically see on these law court TV shows is that if a criminal is caught and he's done something really, really bad, right, really bad, his lawyer or her lawyer will typically give a defense that goes something like this. Your Honor, I know my client did this crime and it's wrong. It's really, really, really wrong. But you got to understand, my client, he had a broken family growing up. He lived in this part of the neighborhood. He wasn't given these opportunities and privileges like his peers in society has, right? You don't understand, Your Honor. My client had specific hardships to almost where he had no choice but to commit that crime. He had no choice but to rape that woman or to kill that child. What is that lawyer doing? He's trying to make the villain look like the victim, right? Isn't that what the lawyer is trying to do? Now, I know none of you in here are hardcore criminals who have committed heinous crimes, and if you have, don't worry. Jesus loves you. Just don't commit any more heinous crimes, right? But even if you're not like that, chances are you are like the criminal to where when you're confronted with your sins, your inner lawyer comes out of you, and you start justifying yourself. You start minimizing. You start qualifying. You start blame-shifting your sins in such a way to where you try to make yourself look more like the victim and less like the villain, right? We say things all the time that reveal that we do this. Don't we say things like, oh, I know what I did was wrong, but you got to understand, this isn't who I really am. I mean, I didn't mean to do this. Well, I don't know what got into me. I'm not really like this as a person. Yes, I know that I cheated on my wife. Yes, I know that I did this to my child. Yes, I know I betrayed my friend at school, but this isn't who I really am. I'm not really like this. Sound familiar? We are all notorious in trying to minimize, excuse, blame shift our sins in such a way to where we try not to be the villain, we try to avoid acknowledging who we really are, and we try to act like we're the victim. But David is not willing to do that with himself, and he's imploring us as an inspired author of the Bible not to do that. He says that we are to follow his pattern. Acknowledge who you really are by acknowledging what David acknowledges. Since birth, I was a sinner. Because let me tell you now, if you don't acknowledge who you really are, you will never recognize the guilt that you really have. Take a listen to what Charles Spurgeon, a great London preacher, says. He writes this, Until I know how much all my powers are debased and depraved, how thoroughly my will is perverted and my judgment turned from its right channel, how really and essentially vicious my nature has become, it cannot be possible for me to know the whole extent of my guilt. Wow. Wow. The first aspect of what it means of living a lifestyle of repentance that will help you grow in your faith and be mature is that it starts with you acknowledging who you really are. You are not the victim. You are the villain. You are the bad guy. You are the evil one. You're the bad guy. You are a sinner. Now, with that said, I have to make sure I follow up quickly with this. Be very, very careful. Be very, very careful when you recognize this about yourself. 
Yes, it's true. You have to recognize that you are first and foremost a sinner by nature. But you have to be careful with that. Because it is possible to embrace that in a way that God does not want you to embrace it. It is possible to take that truth and misapply it and go down a road that God does not want you to go down on. What do I mean? For some people, when they hear this biblical truth, excuse me, they misapply it to where it results in them being filled with such self-loathing, such self-hatred, to where they feel so helpless that they end up doing self-destructive things. Whether it's living promiscuously sexually and they get exposed to deadly diseases, whether it's living a certain lifestyle where they're just trying to comfort themselves as a coping mechanism with exposing yourself to drugs and alcohol, getting that much closer to a premature death, living a rebellious lifestyle that you just try to live like for fun as a way to distract yourself of this guilt. It is very dangerous to not understand how to properly apply the truth that you and I are broken Sinners, it is possible to embrace this truth and end up in a direction that will lead to your destruction and rather leading you towards repentance. Take a listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Starting in verse 10, he says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. What's he saying? It's possible to embrace that you are a broken, flawed villain But instead of leading you closer to God, it leads you closer to death. And so we seem to be at an impasse. How do we acknowledge who we really are as sinners, but yet avoid becoming hopeless and therefore self-destructive? Well, that leads me to my next point. Recognize the true lawgiver. Take a look at what David says in his prayer to God in verse 4 of our passage. Let's have it up there. What he says, against you... And only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, when you first read those words, you can't help but to be somewhat confused or even somewhat offended by what David said. David, David, did you just have the audacity to say that you only sinned against God? Hello? What about Uriah, the man who you slept with his wife and then murdered him in cold blood? What about him? What about Bathsheba, the woman who you basically forced yourself upon because she was terrified because you're her king? What about them? Did you not sin against them? What? Are you just dismissing how you wronged them and you're just saying you only sinned against God? How dare you, David? Is that what you're saying? No, that's not what he's saying. David is not denying that he did wrong against Bathsheba. He's not denying that he did wrong against Uriah. What is he doing then? He's acknowledging who the true lawgiver is. What do I mean by that? Let me explain with this personal illustration. When I was a junior in college, I was one of the leaders of my Korean Christian fellowship at Chapel Hill. I was a treasurer. I handled the money, right? Felt so special. Of course, I didn't feel that special when I found out that Judas Iscariot was a treasurer of the disciples. And so I was like, oh, great, right? Whose idea was to make me treasurer? Not even a good treasurer anyway. But I was a treasurer. <clears throat> but the thing that made that year so memorable is not because I was a treasurer, but because there was an incoming freshman that came in. And here's the thing. His name was Simon. Simon was, for lack of a better word, he was, he was a good-looking dude, a chiseled athlete, right? I mean, he was a Christian, right? But he was a good-looking guy, right? And, of course, all the sisters were like, oh, no, oh, no, right? They were like swooning, right? <laughs> And here's the thing. We made certain assumptions about Simon 
Because when you see a guy who is of that physical stature, you think that he must have a certain kind of persona, certain kind of personality that would match this physical stature, right? They would be confident, alpha male, you know, very outspoken extrovert. We couldn't have been more wrong. Simon was the most quieted, quieted, quietest, shyest person that you've ever met. But here's what's even more interesting about Simon is that he was very self-degrading. I mean, the guy would just be so mean to himself, and he would just say very self-deprecating things. And, of course, we being his youngs, right, we're trying to encourage him. Like, hey, Simon, you know, how you doing, bro? You want to grab dinner with us? Like, no, I don't deserve to have dinner with you guys. Like, Simon, would you like a stick of gum? Like, no, I'm too sinful to have your stick of gum. I'll get my own gum. I'm like, what's wrong with this guy, right? And here we are. We're trying to encourage him. We're trying to pray for him, right? And we got so frustrated because no matter how much we try to encourage him, no matter how much we try to pray for him, the guy just would not wake up. The guy would just be so gloomy, Debbie down, and like, oh, you know, I hate myself. The world should hate me. You should hate me. But then we saw what we thought would be a glimmer of hope. There was a sister in our fellowship, and this girl, she was beautiful. She is what we would refer to today as a holy hottie. Right? You guys know what a holy hottie is, right? Not sure? Look at me. I was called a holy hottie when I was a college uh, student as well. It's a very generous term, right? And this holy hottie girl, the sister, was actually very much into Simon. And we thought, at last, you know, finally, Simon will have something that will wake him up and lift up his spirits. Here is a great godly girl, PK, who loves the Lord and is interested in having a relationship with him. And what happens when she starts pursuing him? It's like, hi, Opa, runs away like she has the plague or something, right? And we're like, what the heck is wrong with this guy, right? And first we started making certain something. Oh, maybe he's like that. Like, oh, no, he's not like that. But what should we do? And so me being the good, you know, spiritual older brother that I was, and also because I was so interested because I gossip with my friends, I said, Simon, here, let me take you out for coffee. Let's go to Caribou Coffee on Franklin Street in Chapel Hill. So I take him out. I'm like, what's going on, man? Here's his sister, loves the Lord, seems to love you. What's the problem? Why not? What's wrong, right? We trust you. We'll hold you accountable. And he was like, oh, young, it's not, it's not like that. It's not about her. It's me. I was like, what's wrong? Turns out, before he was a Christian, he became a Christian right at the end of his senior year in high school. But throughout his high school years, Simon was a player, track star, soccer star, and he wasn't a Christian, and he slept around with multiple girls. At one point, he said he had two girlfriends that found out about each other, and there was such drama in his house, parents like yelling at him, shaming him, right? He didn't care. He saw it as a badge of honor, but then he went to a revival, accepted Christ. He had the snot, he had the tears, and he was on fire for Jesus. But you know what else he was on fire? He was putting himself on fire with judgment and self-condemnation because he's filled with such hatred of himself and such guilt and shame. Then it dawned on me, ah, now I understand why Simon is the way he is. Now I understand why he's this way. Of course, at that moment, I took the opportunity to say, look, don't you remember the gospel? Don't you remember that God loves you? That even though you're a sinner, Jesus died on the cross or that you're wiped away and that you're fully forgiven? He looks at me and goes, you know what, young? That's not the problem. I know God loves me. I know Jesus has forgiven me. But you know what the issue is? I can't forgive myself. That's the issue. I know God loves me. I know God forgives me. But I can't forgive myself. I was like, 
Okay. I didn't know what to say after that. I had no theological training. I didn't know the Bible. It's like, okay, God loves you, forgive, but what do you do again? Oh, when a caramel macchiato gets on me, you know? I had no idea what to say. I was paralyzed. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe Simon is just going through something, and he'll eventually come out of it. You know, I didn't think that it would really take him down a bad road or anything. I just thought, okay, he eventually needs to grow out of this. I certainly didn't think that he was a danger to anyone else. But lo and behold, I was wrong because the following semester, the spring, two of our seniors, right, a young and a nuna that we admired big time, right, they make a public announcement. I don't know why they do this at college fellowship, but they need to announce that they're dating. Do they still do that? You know, KCCC and Innovar. Do they still do that here? Right? Well, they did it. It's like, guys, you know, full disclosure, you know, so-and-so and I had a DTR. That's when I discovered what a DTR was. <laughs> we had a DTR and we're dating, right? And, of course, everyone's like, yeah! Right? And we thought, oh, yeah, they're going to get married. And they ended up getting married. Everyone was happy because we trusted their character. They were good examples, right? We thought that they would stay pure, and they did. At least we, now we know we did, but back then we just assumed they would be. And everyone was happy except for who? Simon. Simon all of a sudden came out of his shell, but he didn't come out vibrant and happy. He came out angry and bitter and judgmental towards this couple. And he's like, how dare they? They're supposed to be examples. I don't even think they're Christian. He would just get all vitriolic and get so angry and so bitter and so judgmental. And at that moment, my eyes were open. The danger of having a, I can't forgive myself mindset. You know what happens when you constantly self-condemn yourself? You know what happens? You inevitably end up condemning other people around you. That's the connection. That's the mechanics that I saw. Whenever someone has a very self-condemning, self-loathing, self-judgmental attitude, they inadvertently turn that and unleash it to those around them. That's what I saw in Simon. And when I saw that, I saw the deeper connection of what makes this, oh, I can't forgive myself mindset so dangerous. Because when I saw that, it clicked for me. What is a person saying when they say, I can't forgive myself? You know what they're saying? I have the authority to determine whether or not I'm forgivable. That's what they're saying. And you know what that is describing? What is that a job description of? You know what that is describing as a job description? That's a job description of the lawgiver. You guys know who the lawgiver is? He's the person who gives the law. He sets the standards. He's the one who determines who is right, who is wrong. He also is the one who has the authority to judge or to pass over judgment. And let me ask you, Bible scholars, who does the Bible identify as the only one true lawgiver? Is it Simon? It's God. God is the only true lawgiver. Now, with that in mind, what is Simon really saying when he says, I can't forgive myself? Who's his God? You know, the Bible has a lot of commands in it, a lot of commands. But one command you'll never find, you can look for it cover to cover. One command you will never find in the Bible is this, thou shalt forgive thyself. You'll never find it. You can look it up. You can do a Google search. It's not going to be in there. If you find it in the Bible, you're not reading the Bible, okay? You're reading something else. Just get away from it, right? Nowhere in the Bible that says to you that you are obligated to forgive yourself. It's not in there. Why? Because the Bible recognizes who the one true lawgiver is. And guess what, folks? It's not you. It's not me. It is 
God and God alone. He is the one who has the authority to forgive, which also means he has the authority to condemn. Okay? Hear me when I say this, brothers and sisters. Not only do you not have the right to judge other people because you're not their God, you have no right to judge yourself because you are not your own God. And this is something that Paul always wanted to tell his disciples over and over. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We have it up there. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. But that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, what's the takeaway? What's the point? Here's the point. Whenever you feel guilty to where you feel like you need to repent, to where you need to feel sorry, to where you feel like you need to change, make sure that you're not repenting from unnecessary guilt. Let me say that again. The next time you feel like you just hate yourself, you've done something wrong, that you need to change, that you need to repent, make sure you're not repenting from unnecessary guilt. Now, what is unnecessary guilt? Unnecessary guilt is what you feel when you violated a law that is not a law God obligates you to obey. Unnecessary guilt is the feeling you get when you feel like you violated a law that God has not obligated you to obey. I cannot tell you how many people that I've encountered who are wasting their life trying to obey laws that God has not imposed on them. So many people are squandering some of the prime years of their life because they're trying to live up to standards that God never called them to live up to. In fact, they may be standards that go against the standards that God calls them to live to. I see this a lot in Asian American families, right? Who says that you have to be a doctor? Who says that you have to go to this school? Who says that you have to marry that kind of person so long as they're a Christian? Well, you know, mom and dad tell me that. Yes, you have to obey mom and dad. But there comes a point where you have to say, what is the standard that I live by? So many people are trying to live by standards that they have created for themselves or maybe their parents created it for them as they were kids growing up and they've internalized it. And mom and dad no longer obligate them to obey, but they're still obeying it because they're filled with such unnecessary guilt. And the danger is unnecessary guilt blinds you from the actual guilt that you have when you violated God's law. That's what makes unnecessary guilt so bad. Because instead of seeing the real problem, you're seeing a fake problem and you're focusing so much on that. No, the only lawgiver and really the only standard of law that you need to be fixating on is the standard of God, God's law. That's why David says what he says when he says, only you and against you have I sinned. In a sense, he's saying, Lord, I am broken I am condemned, and I know it's because not that I violated my laws, not because I violated Uriah's laws or Bathsheba's laws, but your laws, your laws. And your laws are far greater than any law of man. David was feeling condemnation from the law of God, but here's what's so amazing. Unlike the consequences of what happens when we condemn ourselves, which is what? We want to condemn other people, right? That's what Simon did. Condemns himself. He wants to condemn others. When David felt the condemnation of God's law, instead of wanting to condemn others because of his condemnation of God's law, how does he react instead? He wants to bless others. 
Isn't that interesting? When a person condemns themselves, it leads them to want to condemn others. When a person feels condemned by the law of God, they want to bless others. How does that make sense? To explain, let me go to my final point. Remember the great exchange. Earlier in my sermon, I said that one of the things that you will notice is how often David refers to himself, right? But then something strange happens at verse 13. He starts talking about himself less and less. After verse 13, he talks about himself at most seven times. But then you get to verse 17. How many times he talks about himself? Zero. And then he starts talking about other people more and more. What's going on? Something is happening to David right before our eyes. He is transforming right before our eyes as we're reading this prayer, this psalm, as he's lifting up. And so just so that we can witness this transformation, let's read this passage, starting from verse 10 down to verse 13. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. This is weird, especially verse 13. David is feeling condemned by the law of God, right? And what does he do? How does he react towards other sinners? Does he react like Simon reacts when he's aware of his sins and he sees other people's sins? What does he do? You sinner! You're not really devoted to God. He's trying to separate them from God. Here, David feels the condemnation of God's law, and he wants to help other sinners get closer to God. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you? How do you explain this complete opposite behavior, the complete opposite effect between when we condemn ourselves versus when God's law condemns us? How do we explain it? Here's why. Turn with me to Psalm 130, starting in verse 1. Out of the depths I cry out to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, keep a record of wrongs, or keep a record of sins, I have NIV memorized. O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. But with you there is forgiveness. There it is. Do you know the problem, what happens when you are your own lawgiver? When you are your own God, when your God says, guilty, condemnation, that's it. There's no higher court to appeal to. There's no one else that you can turn to. There's no one above God. What God says goes, right? And when you see yourself as your own God, which basically means you feel like you have the right to condemn yourself, and your God, you, condemn yourself, you're hopeless. But if the true God is your God, and you condemn yourself, ah, now you have a higher authority, a higher court that you can appeal to. To where even though you feel condemned, even though you feel hopeless in your own strength, in your own standards, you can say, you know what, even though to myself, to my own, I fail, I know there's a higher standard than my standards. There's a higher authority that refutes my authority. There's the authority of God, the true God. And if I say guilty, but he says not guilty then his verdict stands, right? It's just like the law system courts. If a local court says guilty, but the Supreme Court says not guilty, it's done, right? And what Scripture teaches us about our greatest authority is that in Jesus, there is always forgiveness. 
And because there is always forgiveness, there is always hope when you and I fail. And believe me, you will fail. You will fail yourself. You will fail your parents. You will fail God. We all are sinners. But here's the good news of the gospel. If you have faith that what Jesus did on the cross is for you, then you're free. That's what makes the gospel so amazing. Let's come back to it. What is the gospel? You know what the gospel is? The gospel is the good news that God loved you so much that he became a man. He became Jesus Christ. And as man, you know what he did? From the day of his birth to the day of his death, all he did was live a life of utter perfection. He lived a life of complete obedience so that he earned eternal life. No one can earn eternal life, but Jesus did. Because he was so flawless, so perfect, so pure, he earned eternal life. He earned the status of being the name above all names, of being a a child of God. I know he was already a child of God before he became Jesus. But when he was Jesus, he earned the status of being the child of God as a man. Okay? If that doesn't make sense, I'll send you some articles and you can understand that later. But he earned the status of being a child of God. Why? So that if you have faith in him, if you're united to him, He will give you all that righteousness to you. He will give you all that status. And in return, he will take what? He will take all your failures, all your sins, all the punishment for your sins onto himself. In other words, there's going to be a great exchange. Right? That's the third point. Remember the great exchange. When you accept Christ as Lord and Savior, you go through a great exchange with Christ. If this makes no sense, think of it this way. Think of the following story. Let's imagine there's a kingdom, right? And in this kingdom is a husband and wife. And they are indebted to their master. And so they are the slaves of this master. And let's say this couple has a child, a daughter, right? This daughter is born into slavery because her parents are slaves. That means she's a slave. That means her parents' debts are her debts. And she's now indebted to the same master as her parents. And she has no way of paying this debt. She's a born a slave. How is she ever going to make any money? She can't. It all belongs to the master. But let's say that in this kingdom, the crown prince, for some unknown reason, sees this girl growing up to be a woman, and he loves her unconditionally. And he says, I'm going to marry her. And he does. And they're united. There's a legal transaction that happens when they get married, right? What happens? From the standpoint of the prince, all of his wife's debt that that she owes to the master is now his legal responsibility. He's responsible for that debt. He has to pay it. But because he's so filthy rich, right, that debt is completely covered and he's still wealthy, right? From the standpoint of the wife, She now has everything that the husband has. Everything that's his now belongs to her, right? All the status of royalty, all the wealth is now legally hers to where she can legally claim it as hers, as her personal possessions. Folks, that's what happens when you and Jesus are united in faith, when you are a Christian. All of the righteousness, all of the status of being a child of God becomes yours, and all of the debt of your sins gets perfectly redeemed. And because Jesus is so filthy righteous, if I could use it that way, 
Your sins is not more than his righteousness. And he still remains righteous. He still remains sovereign. He still remains pure and holy. And you take on that holiness. You become rich in righteousness too. That is the gospel. That is the great exchange. That's what you need to remember the next time you fall into sin. When you fall into sin, when you are confronted that you need to repent, you need to remember, first of all, that you are a broken sinner. You're not a victim. You didn't make a mistake. You didn't have a momentary lapse. You are a sinner. But second of all, you need to remember who the true lawgiver is. It's not you. It's God. And finally, you have to remember the great exchange. The beautiful great exchange. The beautiful exchange that is given to us through Jesus. That's what makes the gospel so amazing. You know what that's going to mean? That means when you are confronted with your inadequacy, when you are confronted with your flaws, when you are confronted with your imperfections, and you will, don't try to avoid it. You don't have to be bitter. You don't have to be like Simon to where you now have to condemn other people just to feel better about yourself. Instead, you can finally accept who you really are, be humble about it, but still have hope, and therefore still want to bless those who are flawed or maybe more flawed than you. You know, the problem with this city, the problem with this world, is that when you're confronted with your flaws, the first thing you want to do is find someone worse than you and say, oh, look at that person. They're worse than me. And you kick that person down even more than they are because they're broken. The gospel does the reverse. When you realize how broken you really are, right, but you still have hope because God still loves you in Jesus, and you see someone who's actually worse than you, instead of saying, look at that person, and make them feel even worse about themselves, you go to that person and say, look to Jesus and lift yourself up and go to your God like I went to my God because he first came to us through his son Jesus. Can you imagine how different this city would be if we were like that, if more and more people were like that? Can you imagine how different your workplace, your school, your campuses, your family would be if we were like that? My prayer is that if we want to live out this mission of being a blessing to the world, that we remember the elements of crucial, genuine obedience, excuse me, crucial, genuine repentance. Because when you understand that, that's when you're able to bring real hope in a world that has become so hopeless because people feel like that they cannot change and that they're always going to be doomed into hating themselves. There's no one more dangerous than a person who hates themselves. Because a person who hates themselves, who has no hope, will end up hating other people. But people who are aware of their flaws, who know that God loves them in Jesus, will avoid the consequences of hating themselves and avoid the curse of cursing others, but instead be a source of blessing to those around them. And that is my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me. Will we do that by remembering these elements of crucial, genuine biblical repentance? Let's pray. Father, no one in here is perfect. No one in here is flawless. No one in here simply is a victim. We've all had moments, maybe we're in one now, where we are the villain. We are the bad guy. And Father, I pray that when we are confronted with this, that we would not be like some who feel the need to curse others. but instead that we would reverse this cycle and be a source of blessing. But Lord, we can only do that when we understand the gospel. 
the gospel that teaches us what it means to genuinely repent, that we are who we really are. We are sinners. But you are the lawgiver who is gracious and is always forgiving, as it's evidenced by the beautiful great exchange that we have through your son Jesus. So, Father, I pray that these three things would be always pervading our hearts and minds as we walk on this earth, as we walk with you, as we walk with each other, so that we can be a true blessing in this world. Father, would you help us to do that? Father, I pray especially for those of us in here who have been too hard on ourselves. God, I pray that you would release us from that unnecessary guilt so that we would not be blinded by the real guilt we can bring before you in confidence that has been fully paid for and fully redeemed already. Oh God, help us to remember this and to cling to this beautiful truth so that we would be healthy Christians and together we would be a healthy church. For we pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.